this is Lisa Weinert uh, with our new um, debut narrative medicine podcast. And I'm so thrilled to be here with Charlie Barber, who among many things is the author of Comfortably Numb and is a professor at Wesleyan University and director at The Connection and one of the um, really spearheading thought leaders in narrative medicine. So Charlie, thanks so much for being with us today. Thank you. Um, so yeah, we were just talking about the Kerpali program. Maybe you could um, just you know talk about your experience with it a little bit and describe it. Well, I wasn't there for long enough. Uh, you put together you know this really wonderful group of people that I didn't see enough of. I could only be there for one day, unfortunately. But <laughs> you know it's an incredible place, and it, to me, it did feel you know really spiritual and of a kind of ecumenical, you know, way of no particular, you know, denomination or anything, although there, I know there's a history of various denominations there. Um, but what most struck me was, you know, the team that you put together with truly, truly interdisciplinary um, from, you know, literary practitioners to medical practitioners to uh, the yoga component and, um, doing in addition to teaching. So I thought it was wonderful. And it seemed to me that they were very, very happy with it. And I hope that we're all back there next year. Um, I think it's really exciting. The other thing that struck me is really pretty much anybody in that audience could have been teaching it. It was a super high powered mm-hmm. group, group of people. I was almost embarrassed when I you know, talked to people after I presented with other folks that, you know, there were, you know, people have been psychiatrists for 30 years or pediatricians mm-hmm. or therapists in, uh, you know, in, in various children's programs. And so um, I think maybe in the future getting it, I mean, I'm sure it got more and more interactive. And it was interactive when I was there, but sort of hearing from the wealth of experience was really, really striking to me. No, I was, thank you. I was really inspired by how many uh, sort of clinical doctors were, were in the audience of about, you know, 60 participants. And I've been recently kind of doing more of a lay of the land in, um, you know, maybe you could sort of, we could start this way about, you know, what is narrative medicine? What is the narrative medicine movement in the U.S.? What does it look like? I feel like every time I look around, there's more and more programs and conferences sprouting up really almost daily. And you've been around, you know, from kind of the beginning of it, maybe give kind of like a little micro history of it as you as you see it. Well, I, you know, I think that um, Rita, uh, Sharon at, at Columbia, was really the person who, who organized and um, facilitated a lot of a lot of things that had been happening before. And then she added uh, a research component that had never really been done before where, you know, she did a a study where um, she and her colleagues taught um, storytelling and narrative techniques to medical students and then tracked whether they were rated as more empathic, which in fact they were. I don't think anybody had ever done anything like that before, but Going back to the roots, I mean, there's a wonderful tradition in American medicine or doctoring um, and writers. You know, William Carlos Williams uh, wrote his poems on prescription pads between patients. And, Mm. um, I mean, 
you know, I mean, you can go way back, you know, to, uh, Chekhov was a doctor. Um, and, uh, you know, there's a wonderful Somerset mom. Um, the British writer was, was a doctor, although he never practiced. And then one of my favorite American writers, Walker Percy, um, was a pathologist at Bellevue. And so to me, medicine and writing have always kind of gone together or should go together. Robert Coles, who was my mentor at Harvard, a uh, wonderful writer and, and psychiatrist. So I think that there's the, these literary medical traditions that go back, you know, uh, Céline in, in France was a, uh, a doctor. So I think that, you know, it's gone on for a long time. I think what Rita did was put it all together and in, a, in her typical kind of powerhouse fashion. And then I think there's sort of new offshoots that it emphasize different things or other, you know, the more literary part of it or, um, you know, what I, again, what I thought you put together was amazing with Eastern traditions and other traditions. Mm -hmm. But in terms of what it is, I mean, I, I think this is how we began the, uh, the, the session at Kripalu on the Monday morning. I was involved with a couple other people, the initial, you know, couple hours. And I, I guess we started with this, what is narrative medicine? Um, and I didn't give a very satisfactory answer, but I'll, I guess I'll do it again, which was, it, it all begins with curiosity. And um, I, I think that um, if you as a health practitioner um, show any kind of true curiosity to your patient um, or client or whatever term, it, it, it's absolutely critical and people can feel it and a kind of authentic curiosity. And I think it's, it's a sensitivity and a listening. And then, um, you know, the, the bulk of behavioral health, mental health care, uh, which I've been involved in for the last 20 years, there's basically been a paradigm shift where um, the healthcare system in psychiatry was when I started to get into it, which was the early nineties, it was a real top-down. It was almost like a, I mean, it was still from the very much the hospital tradition, but almost like this sort of militaristic hierarchy of, you know, psychiatrists at the top and patients at the bottom. And if you mm -hmm. were a social worker, a psychiatrist wouldn't call you back. But if you were a doctor, they would call you back. But if you were a social worker, you wouldn't call back a case manager. You know, it, it really was, it was remarkable to me. Um, and what has, there's been a total paradigm shift um, and some of it is sort of a politically correct thing, but for the most it part, it's a wonderful thing where it's, uh, the people listen to patients and, uh, at its best patients direct care, direct their care. And the practitioners are no longer, um, you know, directing the show, but they're sort of expert consultants that the patient engages with on aspects of their care but the patient is at the center and directing their care. And so if that is the case, which, you know, has been the case a lot in uh, behavioral health, and, you know, increasingly, if you go to the, you go to the ER these days, at least at the hospitals where I've been, not that I go to the ER very often, but I've seen, you know, you are the most important person in your care is on the discharge paperwork. Uh -huh. And so, um, so to me, it, it's a recentering of um, the relationships, and if that is the case, that the patient or client is at the center, 
then it's incumbent upon the caregivers to listen and let them tell the story of their own treatments. Um, and then, of course, the other aspect, I think, is the non-medical parts of the, the dialogue. And what you so often find is that um, non-medical, you know, things that don't have to do with the disease or the primary complaint are often the key to the healing uh, in the sense that um, people's motivation um, is often found in sort of energy and hope is often found in, you know, something that just really excites them and interests them and gives them, you know, a reason to get up out of bed or to take their medicine or whatever it is. And so locating that source of energy and hope is just good medical treatment. Well, let's just thank you for all of that. You've said a lot. And I wanted to just backtrack to the beginning part and the long tradition of doctors and literary um, pursuits, and you listed off uh, a number of luminary writers and, and doctors, Walker, Percy, Robert Coles, Chekhov, William Carlos Williams, and just to comment a little bit on why you think this is such a natural, why, why is being a doctor and being a writer a natural bedfellow? Yeah. Um, well, there's an old maxim in in medicine, not that I'm not a doctor, um, but uh, the the way that medical students are trained um, is to follow the chief complaints. And, you know, I've always sort of liked that language. Um, and so then the treatment follows from that chief complaint. And so, again, it, to me, that's good narrative medicine. You hear what is bothering the patient, which may or may not sometimes line up with a di diagnosis or what the doctor thinks is bothering them. But you start there, and the goal is to, you know, hopefully resolve that or, or help with that. So to me, in literary terms, you know, every good book, movie, play starts with a conflict. And, you know, unfortunately, sort of, Human nature, we're really drawn to things that have conflicts. You know, something can be beautifully written, but if there's no sort of edge to it, it doesn't go anywhere. So I guess just the nature of conflict um, in both fields is uh, a, point of, uh, a point of contact. Um, I also think that, you know, I've, I've worked in, um, in, in psychiatric settings with people, you know, in, in pretty acute stages. And if you're interested in, you know, psychology and character and things, settings in which all the social niceties are thrown out um, and it's just sort of the raw elements, um, you know, going to medicine is a good place to go. And that's, uh, I think, when we think of great novels and, and movies, it, it's, you know, I'm just speaking out loud here, but mm -hmm. it's the same rawness and honesty. Um, the drama of the of, human experience. Yeah, laid, laid bare, you know. Mm -hmm. um, so, uh, and then I guess the other piece is, is things happening over time, um, you know, which is, you know, the essence of, of literary writing, I guess, is things unfolding over time. And so any illness or, you know, pretty much any illness 
waxes and wanes and takes place over, you know, often decades. Uh, m- many of the illnesses that we have are, are chronic. Um, and, and sort of that story of over time um, and the, the uh, you know, the, the conflicts, the resolutions, the denouements, the re-flaring up, that, that's just to me like a plot. Thank you. It's so interesting. Um, another thing you kind of touched on was, you know, moving from the experience of the medical student or the doctor in terms of story, finding plot, finding, you know, bare drama, et cetera, was moving into inspiring the voice of the patient, which was a big focus of what um, we did discuss at Kripalu and is kind of a departure from what's happening at other places. But when you talk about patient stories and patients um, owning their, the, like, the voice of their own narrative as part of narrative medicine, and I was hoping you could talk a little bit about that and perhaps um, you talk really beautifully about various um, clients or patients that you've seen and how they have owned their own story and how that's healed them. Yeah, I, um, you know, there's, there's research to show that the degree to which uh, one has agency, uh, in other words, authority over one's own story and kind of responsibility over one's story is a, uh, is correlated with, with better outcomes. Um, so I think from even a clinical point what of view, what does that mean? Can you kind of define that a little bit? Um, agency over so your the, story. Like what does that mean to somebody in a doctor's office or to like the mother of a sick child or, you know, any of these other stories that we're so, um, used to. I think that, um, when people just in general with suffering and illness, when people, take it on and, um, and see it as, um, something that they, that, that they have, um, you know, that they're, they're not passive about that. They, they're, uh, assertive and even aggressive and own it and, um, are honest about it. And there's, you know, there's studies in various settings to show that, all those things are very helpful in terms of outcomes. So uh, I think that a lot of it is the attitude that one has towards um, the issue. Uh, it makes all the difference. And I, I think a lot of it, you know, it sounds sort of old fashioned, but I think sort of responsibility. I think, uh, you know, whether it's, I've worked a lot in, in psychiatric settings, so it doesn't, quite apply to, you know, medical illnesses as much, but whether, uh, you know, a big indicator with, um, prognostic sort of indicator for people with, uh, with severe mental illnesses is whether, uh, you know, it's their problem or it's somebody else's problem or, you know, uh, and so a lot of people sort of think of it as not their own. And so to the degree that people can think of it as their own, I'm not really talking about sort of blame, but taking it on, taking it on directly, the better you taking on their illness directly. Can you give an example? Taking on their illness directly. So when I was running, I, so I, in Manhattan for 
for 10 years I worked with um, in homeless shelters and I worked, I ran two uh, psychiatric facilities for people um, getting either out of shelters or state psychiatric facilities or prison or directly from inpatient units. And um, what I found was when, when we first started doing intake, we were very concerned about the diagnoses. And so this was a you know very chronic group of people, so it would not be at all unusual to have a, an applicant. There were very limited resources, very limited beds, so not be at all unusual, you know, to have someone diagnosed with schizophrenia, uh, exposure to tuberculosis, have HIV, um, criminal charges uh, pending, and you know, chronic diabetes, and. Um, and so, you know, we would be sort of scared off by that sort of weight of diagnoses. And then, you know, then we get other people that had major depression or, uh, you know, a history of substance abuse that was resolved or, you know, according to the paperwork or, um, you know, one diagnosis, you know, bipolar disorder. And so what I found was that when we, we would then interview people in, in, in person and what I found was that the paperwork diagnoses essentially had very little to do with how well people did in our program. And what made all the difference was their attitude towards care. Um, so mm. to be specific, um, we had one guy uh, who I you was know, sort of referring to in my example, he had sort of an active tubercular issue that you know was treated, but it had to be maintained. He had HIV. He had schizophrenia. Um, he had a history of substance abuse that was pretty resolved. It was resolved. I just know from his personal background that his brother had been murdered. His mother was a prostitute and he had never known his father. Uh. And so uh, on the face of it, you think, you know, I was involved in managing a program of 20, we had 20 beds. So, you know, part of our, our decision-making framework was who we could manage, you know. And so early in my tenure doing this job, I would have thought we could only take so many people, I'll call them Bobby. We could only take so many Bobbies. And, you know, we'll, we'll throw in, you know, people that have less severe stuff. Well, Bobby turned out to be one of the absolute success stories of our program. And one of the reasons was, the way that he saw the world, he was the superstar of his family because mm. this was a really nice. Yeah, he was, you know, he was um, the Mick Jagger of his family or the Barack Obama or whatever. He was rocking it out. Um, he was the survivor and this was a really nice facility and uh, he was treated well. And, you know, it was all amazing. Um and then you have now, is this a like, point of view that you coached him with, or he just innately had that? I think he had this. You, you see it. It's, um, it's almost spiritual for people that go through the eye of the needle mm. um, that, that they're almost reborn, um, and their, their resilience is just sort of off the charts. So there are plenty of people that had his level of diagnoses that didn't survive. But, right. but he did, and he, he was now, you know, a lot of these situations were fairly well treated. 
And so it was almost this, uh, there's nothing that can get me, you know, there's nothing that can hurt me. Mm-hmm. I think that, so I think he had it and, or had developed it. I think the other, there was an interesting thing with him where I, um, at, my wife was in graduate school and she was doing kind of antiques and collectibles on the side because she was bored with graduate school. And so <laughs> she, she would in, in clinical psychology and which she did finish. Um, but so she was doing um, yard sales and stuff. So she knew that, that Bobby needed shirts and clothes. So she would buy, you know, shirts and, um, and I would, I, I would, I would bring them in. And um, he, so he kept, I think he asked me one time and then it just sort of started. So I ended up bringing him, he kept on asking for shirts. And, um, so I ended up bringing him, he ended up giving, getting a hundred shirts in his, in his closet. And <laughs> so finally I was sort of like, you know, uh, you know, what, what's it with the shirts, you know? And he said that when he was on, he was homeless on the subway in New York and, decre- you know, decrepit and, um, disheveled and he, and, you know, mm-hmm. just the shirt on his back. And he said that when he would go onto the subway cars asking for money, the voices, which are, you know, a huge part of a lot of um, symptomatology of schizophrenia, the, vo- the voices that he would hear would be people denigrating him for the, the way that he looked, and particularly his shirt. You know, he said, you know, it's terrible with the way you look. And so he explained to me in a very cogent fashion that the every time he got a new shirt, it was like armor against the voices. It actually brought the voices down. Um, That's a great little memory. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so he, I guess, you know, I guess uh, it's a, it's a really good example of sort of the, the social and environmental working with the, with the medical and, Mm -hmm. you know, I, I, I guess my sort of willingness to, I mean, at a certain point, I was sort of annoyed, like, you know, what is it with 100 shirts? And that's when the story came out. <laughs> but, um, and then the other thing, talking about literature, it reminded me of Gatsby. Um, right. in, in the great Gatsby, collecting shirts and showing Daisy Buchanan on their first date after not seeing each other for 20 years is incredible shirts in his closet. And she sort of, I think, covers herself with the shirts and, and stuff like that. So, um, you know, medicine and, and literature again. And then you, as a caretaker, were able to make that association with those stories, which gave you more meaning. Um, I wanted to move for a moment into um, your story a little bit. You have um, written very widely in a huge range in your work, but you've also written very personally um, about your experience um, with what you call a breakdown in, in college and then writing about it and returning to this work. And I was hoping you might comment a little bit about how writing, like your personal writing, is part of your own health care and impacts the work that you do. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, Yeah, I I wrote a memoir essentially about uh, sort of an onslaught that I I had with obsessive-compulsive disorder that really began when I was a, a child. Um, that wasn't an onslaught at that point. It was just sort of passing symptoms of it. it. Like so many mental illnesses, it kind of hit a full expression at, when I was uh, 17, 18, 19. And, you know, I dropped out of college. And, and uh, you know, on the 
was never hospitalized. I was never really incapacitated. But but OCD, and I, I'm not sure this is widely appreciated. I think is a is a uniquely painful. I'm sure probably anybody who's experienced a mental illness sees it as uniquely painful. But I do think there's a a particularly aversive nature to OCD because you're thinking thoughts that you absolutely don't want to think. Um, mm. And it, it, it's very, very painful. It's, and so, so I wrote, I wrote a book about this. I, I'm, I think Dorothy Parker said, uh, I don't like writing. I love having written. <laughs> That's so good. Yeah. And I'm, I'm like that. I mean, writing is actually, well, parts <laughs> of it are, 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 are fairly, are a lot of fun. Um, I think of you as actual, such a like joyful, prolific writer. You always have so many projects going on. You know, I think I've gotten better at it. Uh, I mean, uh, the, the the worst part is the is the is the blank page and just sort of getting the words, you know, mm-hmm. the words down. Um, I had a really good writing teacher at Columbia, and um, he said that writing is a unique art form in that. Every other art form, and I think it's true, um, you have the raw material. So you, if you're a sculptor, you have clay. If you're a filmmaker, you have film. If you're an architect, you have you have bricks. And in writing, you have nothing. And so what your first drafts are doing is actually really just creating the material with which you're going to work, the actual clay, not even shaping it. You're just sort of getting it down. That's the part of writing that I really hate is just sort of the you know, uh, creating the material. Um, Mm -hmm. but I, I love, I sort of love the conceptualization. I love the editing and the shaping and all that. But so, but, but what I most love is getting it down. And, um, John Cheever, I remember watching an interview with John Cheever, uh, by Dick Cavett when I was about 16. And I was just, I really started to experience these, these OCD symptoms. And by the way, I had no idea what was going on. Um, mm-hmm. I didn't know what OCD was. Yeah. This was, uh, I'm, I'm dating myself, but this was 1978. <laughs> and OCD was not in the culture. Like, uh, you know, no, you know, medical people probably knew about it, but that was about it. So I just had no, I just thought I, I thought it was something problematic, you know, in the way yeah. I was brought up or something like that. It was sort of still post, you know, kind of Freudian stuff. So, uh, but John Cheever said um, to Dick Havoc writing, and it was funny because I did just turn on the television. And so I, this is the first thing that I heard him say, writing is the making of order out of chaos, no more and no less. Mm. So the, the, the ordering of the world through, through writing and, the making sense of things, even if they don't make sense, but, you know, creating, creating some coherence, uh, is what I truly, truly love. And it's sort of a, a high for me. And so I think that's uniquely therapeutic for, for me. Um, thank you. I love the way you just effortlessly weave in so many gems of literary quotes. It's just, um, it's a unique gift to have all of that amazing language just floating around your brain and having access to it. I um, I wanted to, you're somebody I really turned to because, uh, well, you're really the person that introduced me to narrative medicine, but the 
some of the things that really turned me on that felt like a white light, like, oh my God, experience when you invited me to help uh, to participate in the Wesleyan Conference narrative in the age of distraction a couple years ago was understanding that writing was medicinal, impactful, mm -hmm. and effective. And I really related to that. And, I, and like you said, sort of creating order with language and how that impacted my health is such a big part of my personal story. And I was mm -hmm. hoping you could just, you know, maybe briefly talk about Pennebreaker and a little bit about how this works in a clinical setting. So for many listeners that might either be therapists or just looking to incorporate this into their own practices, what does it kind of look like and how do we measure it? Yeah, sure. So, you know, along with Rita Sharon, um, who brought it to medical education and, uh, you know, this incredible pioneer and kind of force, if you know her, see her talk, kind of on another track in an in a empirical track, uh, this psychologist at the University of Texas called James Pennebaker for 30 years, and he's still going, undertook um, research, uh, typically clinical trials, where he had um, people write about things, uh, usually, you know, their real experience or their raw experience, um, and he compared it to control groups writing about you know, what they had for breakfast or, or nothing of particular kind of emotional import. And he, he's done, I don't know, you know, at least 50 studies and, you know, many books and hundreds of articles. And a lot of them are on his website, James Pennebaker, P-E-N-N-E Baker. And um, the upshot, and so he, he, he had people suffering or dealing with a variety of issues do this, um, either writing about it or, you know, not writing, you know, writing about anything. And, um, and so it's for people that suffering from a traumatic, had experienced a traumatic event to people that were unemployed to people who were recovering from a heart disease and, and on and on and on. And, uh, there, there's, he's written a couple of review articles where he's put them all together and they're it's highly compelling. And what he, what he found, it's just a, across a variety of, uh, situations that writing helps people out. And uh, so that if you're unemployed and you write about, this, you know, your job search and um, how you're going to deal with it, uh, you get a job quicker than, you know, in, in his studies and the people that write about nothing in particular. Um, people suffering from PTSD um, had a better, um, you know, uh, not resolution, but improvement in their symptoms as compared to people that didn't. Um, he also found, and this was the part I think that really, um, you know, really shocked me when I encountered his work about 10 years ago, is he found physiological benefits. So he found people in mm -hmm. the, you know, heart disease groups doing better, having less um, need for doctor's visits. And he found um, cortisol levels uh, improving and so on. And, you know, I think that... I, I just never thought of it as such a physical uh, thing. It's highly compelling what he's what he's come up with. And I recommend it to anybody. Um, but you know, as I think about when I mentioned the Dorothy Parker, you know, I loved having written. I bet if you did um, my blood pressure, you know, and my uh, mental attitude, you know, I tend to write in the evenings. Um, I, I'm, a, I'm, I'm better than I am all day, you know, when I'm done at 10:30 or 11 at night. 
Um, so I think that, you know, I increasingly see writing and it's not for everybody. It, you know, I think self-expression is probably the main thing. Um, right. it, you know, as a, as a, as a medical treatment, um, as a, as a healthcare imperative for a lot of people. Um, I'm another, use another sort of literary reference, uh, Graham Greene, um, who, who I think I read everything that he ever wrote pretty much. And there was a lot of, a lot of books, but he said, I don't understand the people, the people that don't have an outlet, how they get through life, you know, an artistic mm-hmm. outlet. I don't, I don't quite believe that, but you know, it's, 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 it's health. It's, it's medicine. It's medicine. I like this. Self-expression is medicine. And just a, a final question. I know that you have a lot going on at the connection and, and other places and are about to launch a number of new initiatives using different types of storytelling as um, treatment for people. And just to maybe mention a couple of things you're excited about that are coming up. Yeah. Uh, well, I'm writing a book that I'm very excited about that, you know, a little bit about, um, and yes. it's called Citizen Outlaw, and it's a gangster's journey, and it's about a guy that I actually saw him earlier today in New Haven, a um, guy who was one of the worst gangsters in Connecticut history and in the, in the 80s and uh, was locked up for a long, long time and uh, actually was not really supposed to get out. He, 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 um, he got out earlier than expected. Um, and uh, he has been leading these efforts to um, engage gang youth or, or at-risk kids in New Haven. He runs a team of eight people that are former felons, and they do uh, walk the streets at night and talk to people and, and get involved after conflicts and shootings. And he happens to be a super talented guy, and so he's, he's amazing at sort of pushing buttons with people. But the main thing is he has the ultimate sort of street cred. So the kids really listen to him. And uh, in New Haven, five years ago, there were 32 homicides, which is an extraordinary amount. New Haven is population 130,000. So on a per capita basis, that's double and triple what New York or Boston would be. Mm-hmm. Um so far this year, and we are, you know, 60% of the way through the year, almost, there have been three homicides in New Haven. It's gone from 32 to three so far this year. And there are people in New Haven think that he is, yeah, I know, it's amazing. Um, And uh, people in New Haven, officials that I've talked to, that think that he is the primary reason for the the reduction. and if you hang out with him, you can kind of see that happening. So I'm, I'm very excited about writing about him. And, and uh, um, I, you know, it, it's the same, really coming from the same wellspring. It's uh, using his story, uh, mm-hmm. and I'm interested in sort of redemptive stories, using his experience, uh, exploiting his experience for the maximal benefit. And he also has that sort of, reborn oh he's not you know terribly spiritual it's more this uh, he actually works he has two full-time jobs uh just one a employee of the year at his other job which is a very large social service agency 
so actually he goes back to the prison where he was imprisoned and he and he runs groups for people um and so it it has that same sort of uh probably one of the last chapters to be called the layup um because i asked him is it was hard work you know does it make a lot of money now he used to make a million dollars a year um you know is it is it hard what you're doing he's oh no this is, this is a layup compared to he used to play basketball this is a layup compared to what i did this is nothing you know so he has that sort of joy to what he's doing. I need doing. to start talking um, like that. <laughs> what's that? I need to start talking like that. That's a great line. This is a layup. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. And then the other thing I'm very excited about, which um, we actually just won a national award for at The Connection. Um, so project, again, that you're familiar with, Lisa, but uh, we've we've hired former uh, felons who are now doing well, people like yeah. this guy, William, uh, who are now acting as counselors um, and adjunct counselors and mentors at a, at a halfway house program. And, and we found it's a, it's a clinical trial and the people that are given um, these mentors that the recidivism rate, the return to prison rates are remarkably lower Um 22% lower than the people that are getting the usual, the usual counseling services. Um, and so uh, we, since I've seen you, it was, this program was um, awarded the outstanding criminal justice program in the Northeast uh, by the National Criminal Justice Association. Um, so we're really excited about that. And we're, we're looking to kind of replicate that and, and, uh, and sort of bring it to scale. So, um, so that's been fun too. Um, but you know, I know you you comment on all the stuff that I do. It's, uh, it's, it is generative for me. Like it's, you know, these mm -hmm. things are not for the most part energy. They don't take ener away energy. They kind of create energy. And, and I think, you know, I, I work in a variety of settings, but it's all, it's all the same. It is mm -hmm. to me, it's all the same, the same project just the way most good writers, even great, great writers basically tell the same story in every novel. Um, my, my thing is, uh, when you go through hard times, you uh, try and use that story for your benefit and other people's benefit. And so that's the, the through line with, you know, pretty much everything that I do. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me this afternoon. It's always great to talk to you, and I'm excited to um, follow and read and support everything to come. Back at you, Lisa, and, um, <laughs> you know, we'll, we'll talk soon. <laughs>